So, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. If I could have your attention, please. Um, we're ready to begin this evening's Enlightenment Lecture. And uh, as Vice Principal International of the University of Edinburgh, it's, my, it's actually my great pleasure to welcome you to this, the first Enlightenment Lecture this year, 2010. And on this occasion, it's being hosted by the uh, Edinburgh Global Health Academy. Um, I'm sure many of you will know that the Enlightenment Lecture Series has a long and auspicious history, and it draws its inspiration, of course, from the Scottish Enlightenment, which was um, a period of radical and visionary thinking in Scotland, just as it is now in the 21st century. So the 21st Century Enlightenment uh, is celebrated by th these lectures, and this evening um, it's a great privilege uh, and honor for us to be hosting um, Lord Nigel Crisp, and he is going to um, lecture to us on aspects, controversial aspects of, of, of the global health agenda. But I'll, I'll, I'll say a little bit more before introducing him formally. Um, we are also privileged to welcome, as accompanying guests of honour, uh, Dr. Richard Smith, who is the, the current director of the United Health Chronic Disease Initiative, and Dr. Ginny Barber, who is chief editor of the Public Library of Science Medicine Journal. And both uh, Drs. Smith and Barber have been working this afternoon um, at a workshop uh, discussing the ins and outs of, of, of academic uh, publishing in particular. And, and we're very pleased to, to have you both here with Lord Crisp. After, after the um, uh, lecture, uh, Dr. Smith has, has kindly agreed to, to lead the question and answer session that will follow. Isn't that right, Richard? Thank you. So I should say that um, the Edinburgh Global Academy was actually launched last um, November in support of the university's new internationalization strategy, which aims really to take the university yet one step further, to, to take a step change in its um, presence and, and setting as, a, as, a, as an international university. And in a nutshell, the Global Academy has, has three initiatives, and they are to offer world-leading interdisciplinary postgraduate degrees to help combat uh, global health challenges, to engage in, in global health collaborative research to make life better for everyone, and to participate and lead in the creation of, of global health networks and, and health partnerships. So it's entirely appropriate that on this occasion it should be the Global Health Academy that is um, hosting the, this particular Enlightenment lecture and that Lord Crisp should be the one here to enlighten us th this evening. Throughout his uh, illustrious and productive career, Nigel Crisp has impacted health for good at local, national, and international levels. Um, previously, he has been a, a senior civil servant in the uh, English Department of Health, uh, uh, or the UK Department of Health, and then a department, um, um, a senior manager in, in the English National Health Service. He is now uh, an independent crossbench member of the House of Lords, where he continues to focus on international development and global health. And his new book, um, 
Turning the World Upside Down, The Search for Global Health, was actually published earlier this year. And um, it's um, not a coincidence that his lecture has a very similar title and is based on the very uh, important but not uncontroversial uh, themes in the book. And he's allowed me to uh, invite you to um, inspect the item in question. And if you so wish, um, even make a donation and receive a, a signed copy uh, uh, afterwards. But for now, I'm going to stop speaking. Thank you very much, Nigel, for coming to speak to us and welcome you to come and give your lecture. Nigel Crisp. Thank you very much indeed. Um, and what a daunting title to be asked to give an Enlightenment lecture. Um, I'm taking it that I'm celebrating the Enlightenment rather than uh, offering particularly much Enlightenment. But maybe in our discussion later, Richard will make sure that we, uh, uh, we get some Enlightenment out of this. I first came across the Scottish Enlightenment when, as a, a philosophy student, really rather a long time ago, I read David Hume. Um, and what a symbol he is, I guess, for your city here. Uh, but actually also for philosophers everywhere, with the fact that he took... Uh, I mean, his position, really, as, as, as I saw it, was he would look at the world not through the ideas and ideologies and preconceptions of the day, but look at the facts and then think about what he thought about it. Um, made him pretty unpopular, as I understand it. Um, and certainly that's a tradition that I, as a philosopher, would like to follow of looking at the facts rather than starting off with the ideas and ideologies. Um, and as I, in preparation for, for giving this lecture, looked more at what happened in the Scottish Enlightenment, it really was a remarkable time, wasn't it? With people bringing forth all kinds of ideas which I, as, a, uh, as, as an Englishman, hadn't appreciated um, uh, were coming from, uh, uh, from Scotland. Um, and I guess the only other person I'd mention who's been influential in my life, of course, is Adam Smith. Um, and his notion not only of the market and the invisible hand of the market, but actually that it operates in a social context, seemed to me to be remarkably important um, in today's global financial climate. Coming to Edinburgh, though, is also a family occasion for me, uh, and coming to this university, which I don't think I've ever actually st st uh, set foot in before, um, but I had lots of relatives here. My mother graduated in economics and history in, I think, 1936, uh, and then worked in public health. Her brother. Uh, various cousins. I indeed have a second cousin who's a medical student here today. So it's really nice to come and actually set foot for the first time as, I, I, in this university. Now, what I'm going to talk about is, uh, and perhaps I should just preface it, as, as um, St Steve said, I was chief executive of the NHS in the UK for, for, for nearly six years, but as my friends say, I'm now in recovery. Um, uh, and when I retired from it, uh, the then Prime Minister, the Prime Minister but two ago, I suppose we'll have to think of him as, uh, Mr Blair, asked me if I would go and look at what more we could do to support, with our experience and our expertise, what more we could do to support improving health in poorer countries. Um, and in doing that, I'd been inspired by various people, including, of course, many people from Scotland who have a remarkable tradition, and I uh, salute Liz, Liz, Liz Grant and colleagues here uh, for the work that people do in supporting... Um, uh, health in poorer countries. So I went off and I wrote a report which got published uh, three years ago uh, and which I think was partly influential in UK policy. And, and it said two big things that I, I'll mention. The first one was, well, the first thing we need to do is to stop telling people what to do and to start supporting them in what they want to do themselves. 
And the second big thing we could do is actually support people in educating and training more health workers. Crying practical need for more health workers um, on the ground throughout poorer countries. And that's the theme I'm going to come back to. But if that was all what you might have imagined before, before I set off and I laid out various practical ways of doing that, the thing I guess that surprised me and the thing that this lecture is about is how much we have to learn. Knowledge transfer isn't just from the rich and powerful to the poor and weak. There's knowledge transfer the other way around if we look for it and if we understand it. And that's why I'm calling this turning the world upside down because it's what we can learn uh, from poorer countries. So let's start globally. Let's start with the global context. Um, and five quick themes here. The first one is that today, even more than 20 years ago and more than we were aware of 30 years ago, we are astonishingly interdependent in health terms. And it's not just the diseases and the bugs that can travel around the world. The fact that in the 14th century, it took the Black Death three winters to get across Europe, uh, and that a few years ago, it took SARS three days to get around the world. It's not just that interdependence. It's the fact that, that we are interdependent too on the same staff. Health staff are astonishingly mobile. On the same drugs. Um, and questions then start to arise, of course, of whether they're fairly distributed between the places which need them most and the places uh, that have them most. But it's not just those sort of interdependencies. There's also an interdependence in terms of our knowledge and in terms of our preconceptions and how we think about health uh, that is increasingly true. And for many of us as well, actually, there's an interdependence in terms of cultural issues. I think in the UK that there are many communities where actually it is very useful if you're a doctor to understand the cultural background of many of the people who work there. If you're in the East End of London, for example, actually it's useful for you to know something about Bengali culture uh, in terms of how you're going to be treating your patients. And then finally, of course, our interdependence is going to grow and we're also going to see the shifting of the balance of power, if you like with more ideas and more developments coming anyway from the richer countries in the East um, as we perhaps come relatively poorer. So that's the first big point, is we are now so interdependent. The second one, I've, uh, and my apologies to any economists in the room, it isn't really a trade, but there's something I classify as the unfair health trade, and it goes like this. We import into our country health workers from around the world. In exchange, we send them our ideas and our ideologies, whether they work or not. Um, and I say that deliberately because I've been in places in Africa where I come across British health workers and they see the world in terms of the NHS and so they talk in terms of those concepts. Round the corner I come across American health workers who will actually talk in different terms and talk about insurance and things like that that are anathema to us. So we've got this health trade going and I argue in my book, well, what if we did it the other way around? What if actually we imported some of the ideas from the poorer countries and we sent them some of our health workers? which is where they needed them. And would that be a more interesting exchange? And that's the theme I'm going to keep coming back to. And the background to it, very locally, is I believe, and I'll talk about the fact there's a real crisis in Western scientific medicine, and that there are new ideas from poorer countries, and that if you put the two together, we should stop talking about international development, and we should start talking about co-development, learning from each other, and emerging of traditions. So that's my background. Let's then pick up, then, on what I call the crisis in Western scientific medicine. Let's start with the great news, the great news of the 20th century, which was a most remarkable century in health terms, um, that models of health care based on Western scientific medicine led to improving health, combating disease. And there are four big drivers I just pull out. One's greater professionalism. 
the last 100 years, if I think of an American milestone, Flexner in 1910, since 100 years ago, um, uh, and that founding of me medicine in, on scientific inquiry much more uh, than it had been. We've seen greater professionalism through the century. We've seen scientific discovery. We've seen commercial development going in hand in hand with that scientific discovery, exploiting uh, the inventions in places like this uh, uh, and making them more available commercially. And we've seen astonishing increases in funding. And one of the interesting points is that the funding has come from the public sector. Um, you may not know it, but the Americans have the most subsidized health service in the world. By subsidized, I mean more of the public dollar goes into it. They, like us, put about 7.5% of public funding, 7.5% of GDP of public funding into their health service. They then add 8.5% of private funding. We add about 1.5% of private funding. Um, but you see, the, you see the pattern. As countries get richer, it's more and more paid for by the public sector. Uh, and that's a, a very uh, common trend. So... That's the story of the last century in terms of what happened. And didn't you, didn't this institution do extraordinarily well? Um, however you measure it, health improved extraordinarily. If I just take life expectancy for a man, life expectancy in, 2000, in 1900 was 49. Um, in 2000, it was 79. 30 years in a century, three years a decade, or if you want to think of it like this, eight hours a day. It's not bad. Even if you had a really rotten day, You've got another eight hours to, to look forward to. Or actually, if it was that bad a day, you may regret the fact that you have a, your life expectancy went up. But that is an astonishing measure of success. Now, it wasn't, of course, just achieved by the health service. I have a very little chart here that um, shows that actually our column, the health column, um, where we got increasing professionalism, anesthetics, this, this, this goes over a century, anesthetics of about 1911, Greater access in 1948, Clean Air Act, surgery, new drugs, all of these making their contribution, as did growing wealth, uh, with, again, pensions being available to men in 1911, I think, for the first time, greater employment, consumerism, and, uh, and so on. And then on the other side, all the things to do with um, the, uh, widening the franchise to women, uh, the welfare state, equalities, education, health and safety at work, all of these things making this extraordinary contribution. Uh, and it's important that I... I, I draw this out because it's one of the points I want to come back to, which is how to link these last two slides, the slide about the health system and the health services, and the slide about how that relates uh, to wider society and how often we actually separate them off, even though we know that clean water <laughs> is, is one of the great things that has happened in history in, in, in terms of health. We too often talk just in terms of health systems. So let me move on from there and say, well, why do I think that... This is all in trouble now, though those of you working in health probably know. Um, my version of it is life has changed. Four big disruptions, four things changing it radically. Diseases and conditions are different. People die of different things now than they did a century ago. Our model was set up on a basis of much more communicable diseases, sometimes much less complex diseases in some ways. Um, our diseases now are non-communicable diseases. I guess a lot of people in this room see their standard patient as being an elderly person with multiple pathologies, much more complexity to deal with. Patients and the public are changing. Not only are patients more important when you're talking about non-communicable diseases and about behaviour, but actually they will stand up for less. Um, they will be less prepared to just do as we say. I hear people around the, the health system in America or here talking about the fact that 30% of drugs are not taken in the way which doctors prescribe. 
And then they go on to say, well, we've got to get those patients in line, you know, find out ways to make them conform to our methodologies. Well, there's another way of thinking about this, which is to understand perhaps why they're not doing that and to understand that actually the norm probably is that we patients make an awful lot of the decisions and we empower the professionals. It's more that way around. I have a friend who talks to me about um, when it is the patient takes the decision and when it is the doctor that takes the decision. And they sort of cross over. There's a graph between acuity uh, and patient decisions. And when the patient is really sick, when they're unconscious, they do 100% of the time what the doctor tells them to. Um, but not surprisingly, as they get better, as they feel better, they stop doing that. They make all kinds of decisions in the process, and we sometimes don't always acknowledge that. Science and technology, are, and that's disruptive to the systems we've set up. Science and technology are developing. People will think of very good examples here. But I think of even a simple one, like in, in, in uh, cardiology, the, the move from cabbages to stents, from open-heart surgery, from something done by cardiac surgeons to something done by, card, by cardiologists that happened in my time, and how disruptive that was in certain small ways and that was related to technology. And as some of the new technologies people talk about start to come in, aren't we going to disrupt our service models and our means of training and the way in which different professions do different things? Aren't we going to see some major changes there? And then, of course, the final point I've got there about the health environment uh, becoming global um, it, uh, and all the impact I talked about earlier. So it's not just, though, that we've got these four disruptions. I would also argue the model that we're using at the moment has now become part of the problem. What do I mean by that? Um, I mean by it that if you're trying to set up a diabetes service in the community in England, you actually find that the fact that we are organised around A, doctors, B, hospitals, C, certain ways in which the money flows, that it's actually very difficult to set that up effectively. And that sometimes it is something as simple seemingly simple as payment systems that actually get in the way of your setting up uh, the, um, uh, the health service that you need. Or I think of elderly people. I think of my, my father, aged 88, who fell over the other day, broke his arm. Um, clinically, it was very obvious what needed to happen. He needed to have his arm in a sling, and after about six weeks, five weeks, he needed to have some physiotherapy and get better. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was, could he live independently by himself? That was the issue, and the health service actually didn't do too badly, but that's not what it's geared for. That's not how we have set up uh, the health service. It's been built for another model. But also, there are some things here which um, I could go on about, but let me just mention very briefly about the way in which sometimes the bits of the health service it's, itself work together in, in ways which are dysfunctional. Let me take an example. I, I mentioned earlier that... Um, the great things in the last century were growing professionalism, growing, growing science, and growing co uh, and commercial exploitation of that science. They've achieved remarkable things, but they've also received, uh, achieved some poor things. Let me take an American example that was in the New York Times recently. It was of a doctor um, who was being persuaded by his colleagues as doctors to take a share in the latest CT machine and put it in their local surgery. Um, now, he was being told, this will be great for you because, you know, you'll be able to offer to your patients the very latest technology. He resisted, and the reason he resisted was he could see that actually, if he was owning the machine, if he had some vested interest, it, well, he just might be tempting to send one or two patients more there who didn't necessarily need it. And anyway, there was a CT like that 15 miles away, which was not out of the question that you could get patients there. And you can see how that sort of coming together, if one's not careful, of the 
of the individual interests of the, of the professions of science and of commerce can actually lead to both escalating costs at one, uh, one term and actually behaviour um, which isn't any good in, term, in, in terms of health terms. So our basic model now is giving us problems. So where do we look for, for um, other ideas? Where do we look for for change? Where do you look for when you're running IBM and laptops suddenly start to appear? It's the same story of disruption. It's outside the mainstream. It's not the people in the mainstream generally who are going to produce the big changes that are going to take you from here to here. Um, and what's also interesting is that whenever you make those sort of big changes, people talk about it, uh, any major disruption, people talk about it and criticise it in terms of poor quality. That's what happened with the laptop as opposed to IBM, uh, the mainframe, uh, and so on. And I think we're at that sort of point. So where are we going to get new ideas from? Um, uh, where are we going to be able to um, uh, think differently about this and think about what the system looks like? And I think they're going to come from five areas. One is pioneers within the system. When I say the mainstream um, isn't going to take us forward, many individuals within the mainstream are. And I think of remarkable work that people are doing, for example, on the, on the, on the patient um, decision-making area, a man called Al Mully in Harvard, for example, um, who's done some really interesting technical work on the points at which patient and physician um, uh, decision-making interlock and do so to best effect. Many pioneers doing many interesting things. We will learn from other industries. There's a whole uh, wealth of knowledge now about quality improvement coming into the health system, which actually is coming from manufacturing industry. It's from seeing things as a system, from understanding that when you change the referral system, you have a knock-on effect right the way through the system. And that actually, by solving the problem with the referral system between GPs and, uh, and hospitals, you may well cause problems elsewhere. How do you think in systems terms? some stuff we can get from other industries, some stuff from poorer countries, I'll come back to that. Um, some stuff from young people. Um, I have been struck um, by, in this country and in the US, by the number of young people who are interested in something they call global health, um, in, in actually health which links in the entire world where their issues are the same as other people's issues. Um, and given that they're seeing it in such different ways, I think they offer insights to some of those of us in the establishment. And then the disabilities and rights groups, the people who sometimes are the expert consumers, the people who live within our systems, live their entire lives within our systems, um, and produce some really interesting critiques. And what I would argue is that we need to take off, if you like, we need to see the world differently. We need to uh, take off, if you like, not only our NHS spectacles, but if you like, the spectacles inside our heads as well. Um, and this is where I just make one more cross-reference to Hume. It does seem to me that we very often hear uh, look at the world in terms of our ideas and preconceptions uh, and determine what it looks like. And sometimes we need to look at it afresh. And some of these people, I think, can help us to look at it afresh. Let me then concentrate on the one I'm going to concentrate on, which is learning from poorer countries. Let me start by saying their problems, I do understand, are in a completely different league from ours. Let's just get the comparisons right. Sub-Saharan Africa, 10% of the world's population... 25% of the burden of disease, and to deal with that, 3% of the resources and 1% of the staff. That is the equivalent of running your major teaching hospital here uh, with about six doctors and 25 other staff. 
That's the sort of proportions we're talking about. They are in a completely different league in terms of the problems they have. They're made worse by poverty, by social issues, internal and external power relationships, which I, I won't, won't, won't go into, but in terms of how the country is organized and run. They also have profound shortages of resources and health workers. We dwell for a moment on the health workers. Um, I know that one of the things we will instantly think is, well, part of the problem is we take all their health workers. They migrate to the UK. It's been true in the past. It's actually stopping now, but nevertheless, it is true and very significant. However, if you look at the figures, you will discover that the best estimate is that 135,000 people who've had some kind of health training in sub-Saharan Africa have emigrated to richer countries in the last 35 years. If they all went back, they'd deal with about 10% of the problem. The numbers issue is much bigger than that. Uh, and that's comparing with a WHO uh, assessment of a uh, fairly low assessment of what's needed. They reckon about a million people are needed in, in a million more people are needed in Africa. Um, but actually only 135,000 have emigrated. The biggest single issue in terms of numbers is educating and training more of the right people. I'm sure you're all uh, in this great university read the Ethiopian Medical Journal. Uh, if you did read the Ethiopian Medical Journal for January 2008, you would have seen an analysis of every doctor trained in Ethiopia in the last 35 years. There were 3,500, 100 a year. Ethiopia is bigger than our country. We train 8,000 a year. The, the differences are marked, and it's the area where I think we can do most good. But my point here is that whilst resources, professional and science are needed to help make improvement, lack of money and baggage sometimes gives space to innovate. And let me just illustrate that. Firstly, there are some specific innovations. There are things like actually uh, treatment of HIV AIDS has, become very, uh, has moved on very fast because of things that have, in part, because of things that have been learned in Africa. There are specific conditions, and I think of something like club foot, uh, whereas I understand it, um, in the past that has been dealt with in this country with a major operation, but now we have re-imported um, a manipulative technique which has been relearned um, in Malawi, uh, a country where they have a lot of club foot and, uh, and not much money to deal with it and therefore needed to see changes happening. Policy initiatives, something called conditional cash transfers, which is a way, may, way of getting um, uh, health money, money and uh, health services to the poorest people in Mexico, uh, was developed in 1997 under the, under the title Opportunidades Mexico. It, went, it transferred to New York in 2007 with Mayor Blomberg calling it Opportunity New York and acknowledging explicitly that he had taken a policy uh, that had come from Mexico and put there. Product development, Aravind, a very interesting eye organization in southern India where there's major problems with cataracts, developed a $2 lens and a better way of, a simpler way of doing cataract surgery to get to the masses. Telemedicine, lots of examples of interesting experimentation and some interesting results. And what's interesting, this isn't just me saying this, private sector companies are now uh, making the same point. GE, in fact, has developed a new product range of 100 products, which are products it developed for India and poorer countries, and which it's now selling here. Um, and they're products that are much more simplified, they don't have the bells and whistles, um, they're smaller, they're much more transportable, and they're now selling them here, undercutting their own products here by about, by about two-thirds. They're actually seeing that if they think about that market um, and they think about innovation there, they can transfer it to us very effectively. 
And McKinsey's, the, the management consultancy firm, I pinched this slide with their permission from them, of showing innovation in health um, care delivery, which is taking place around the world. You can't read it, um, but you can see the green countries. Um, uh, and, and it really indicates that 35, I think it is on that slide, um, of the most interesting innovations that they think will have the biggest impact around the world. Um, and you can see the range of countries that they're taking them from, including, as it happens, Aravind with low-cost eye care solutions here, uh, but others, as you will see, in Africa uh, and several in India. So big changes, but actually more important than those specific innovations is there is what I think of as an emerging tradition. There's another way of thinking about the world. There's the way in which you have... Um, uh, in many countries, how community, family, and women are much, much more involved uh, in healthcare, much more directly. Um, I think of somewhere like uh, Bangladesh, where they've got an extraordinary system called BRAC, which some people uh, will be aware of, um, where they very deliberately use the strengths of their communities um, and families in order not just to get health messages across, but actually for treatment. And what's interesting there, and my second bullet point, is they don't treat health as if it's an industry, as if it's something over here done in specialised buildings and all the rest of it. Health and education and employment are linked. You know? Helping a woman with the health of her baby is important. Educating her as well about how to handle them, helping her get a job, these are all really fantastically important uh, pieces of a jigsaw. Turn that back into the UK... And you think of areas like mental health, where friends in mental health tell me that two of the most important things you can do with patients is, one, get them a job, and secondly, get them decent housing. Um, this isn't just about the sort of very clinical way that we think about things. Independence, of course, as a goal of healthcare, was what my father needed. Uh, he, big issue for him was how did he manage to remain independent, him, like, him and many other elder people. Uh, and in, in a way, we've got to turn something else upside down here. We talk about health and we talk about the social determinants of health. What we don't talk about quite so much, I suspect, in health systems is we don't talk about health's contributions to other things and that actually the reason you want to be healthy is that you can live a life you want to be, you, you, the life you want, that actually you get your life back when you're, you're ill, uh, you actually are able to function uh, properly again. So there's that sort of different mindset there. There are social enterprises and different business models. There's a bringing together much more of public health and clinical medicine. Uh, let me acknowledge uh, the, uh, the very good tradition you have here, uh, looking at uh, pr uh, Professor, um, of uh, um, uh, primary care and public health being in the same, uh, in the same environment. Uh, but you see all over the world areas where people are working on both those issues in a much more joined up fashion. And then finally, and this is the one I want to spend a moment or two on, is people train for the job and not just the profession. What do I mean by that? I mean that in Mozambique, 97% of caesareans are done by nurses with additional training called technicos de chirurgia, 97% outside the capital. Um, the results are that their results are as good as those done by physicians. The other two relevant results are they've stayed in the country whereas the physicians have emigrated, who were trained at the same time. And thirdly, it's half the price. You could tell the same story about cataract surgery um, uh, uh, across Africa, that people were trained to do cataract surgery. Now, this doesn't mean to say you don't need the most highly trained people, as in this audience, um, but the question is here, have we got the proportions right? If I look at our staffing structure, our staffing structure is a, is a pyramid like that with a great flat top, an awful lot of people at the top. 
uh, and I'm not talking about managers, I'm talking of uh, the clinical workforce. The African structure is much more like that with a smaller number at the top. And you can see where policymakers, uh, whether you, what we, I appreciate how controversial this bit is, but you can see where policymakers are going to go and say, well, hang on, if you can do it as well with people who you train for three years, provided they're linked into a system where there are people who've been trained for nine years, well, why are we doing it the way we are? Why are we pushing everyone through to the top and then getting some of them to work down on jobs which other people could have done with three years training? I'm sure we can end up with some discussion on that in a moment, Richard. But if I put all that together, I think there's something big happening here, which I just sort of try and characterize as if the first set of models were models based on Western scientific medicine. I think the models for the future are going to be much more based on what I call global health. And by global health, I mean health issues that affect us all. Um, and in that context, I think rather than just talking about tackling disease and promoting health, I think we're going to be in the business of promoting independence, helping people to live the lives they want, promoting interdependence, uh, and indeed rights to health within society. I think there'll be some different goals. I think the big drivers of Western scientific medicine will be modified. I think professionalism will change so that professionals are much more, it's much more about professionals being empowered by patients and by societies to allow uh, them to do things to us, whereas we often talk about it the other way around of empowering patients. I suspect it's much more the other way around. Science has got some really big issues to, to question. It's going to be much more, there's going to be much more links with social sciences. Today I was in a dis listening to um, the discussion from... Um, uh, from, 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 from our, our colleagues on um, randomised clinical trials uh, and uh, randomised controlled trials and whether these will, are going to be the model that is absolutely going to be fine for the future in terms of knowledge. Science has to think about what we're trying to do with science. Are we trying to promote equity or inequity? Are we using it to promote independence or dependence? Are we promoting early health and more work on diagnostics? Are we promoting more on... Uh, uh, you know, the other end of science. Commerce, increasingly, as I said earlier, actually healthcare is paid for by governments. Governments don't yet really operate as if they are the biggest buyers of drugs in the world, but they are. Right? This is about private sector working within a public sector, with, sorry, within a public value uh, context. And funding, where we've got to stop thinking that quality and money are the same thing and that funding is about value. Let me then pick up on two final things. Firstly, change is already happening. I haven't invented any of this. I'm charting what other people are doing. I see increasingly that people are working on independence, um, out-of-hospital programs, dealing with elderly people, bringing together patients, health and social workers, lots of pioneers working in that territory. I see people trying to rebalance their health systems between providing care between population health and between costs, and that's what every health board has to do uh, here. I see systems development and understanding the systematic quality improvement, as I said, borrowed from, uh, borrowed from industry. I see changes in health worker training and redesign. Over the 20 years I worked in health, um, uh, I saw people, I saw nurses taking on much wider roles. I saw a whole lot of changes that are starting to happen. Um, but in all of that, um, it's not yet mainstream. This isn't actually yet the way we do it. These all feel a bit like they are add-ons uh, and not part of the, the mainstream way of working. And then finally, there's a whole set of issues around interdependence and co-development. I'm conscious of the time, so I'm going to finish with a story, which is actually about um, 
what we might be able to do, uh, what if my analysis is even half right, that actually we've got some real problems and we can learn from elsewhere, but that actually poorer countries have got some massive problems and they could benefit from us. If my uh, unfair health trade would, tra would turn the other way around, is it possible that we could provide health workers um, to work more in Africa and other places and that we could learn more from them? Could we turn that upside down? Well, I've pressed this at government. I've said that in the, in the audience here, I reckon 50% of the people in this audience either have worked abroad or wouldn't mind working abroad for a period. It's probably why you're in the room, so it's maybe higher than 50%. But any group of doctors, nurses, and clinicians I find, I find that desire to do something. And I find countries in, in, in Africa in particular where ministers are saying to me, African ministers are saying to me, this is what we need. We need more expertise. We need more skill. Can't we put those two things together? Can't we find a smart way of doing that? And I've been pushing that at government from my independent seat in the, in the House of Lords and will continue to do so uh, with, the, with the new government. Um, but I also decided I ought to try and do something. So I did, uh, two years ago, August um, 2008, I sent out a survey to 30 people I knew leaders in health and in education. And I, and, and I wrote to them and I said, asked them three questions. The first, 30 people, 35 people in the UK and six, uh, 12, sorry, in, uh, in six countries in Africa. I asked them three questions. Firstly, we've got all this expertise. Africa's got all this need. Ought we to find a way of trying to put the two together? Secondly, if so, how would you do it? And thirdly, are you doing something already? Um, I sent that out on August the 3rd, and I said, I'm a chief executive, I can only read two sides of A4, so make your answers short uh, so I can analyze them. And by the way, can I have them back by August the 30th? Um, I sent out 35, and by August the 30th, I got 133 replies, which is a hell of a survey, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's because people use their networks, they pass them on. So that I got replies from people, for example, like the president of UCL, who I hadn't written to. Um, 25% of that sample were people at the top of their organization. They were deans or presidents of universities um, or chief executives of hospitals. The Brits, I, I also got 12 replies from the, from the 12 Africans. Um, that first question, all the respondents said, there is more we can do. The second question, amazing unanimity on what we could do. And it was help train the trainers. Provide us staff while we train more trainers in the specialities we need. Um, it was distance learning, it was buddying, it was curriculum development. It was all those kind of expertise things that many people are doing in a little way. And what the Brits also said to me is two-thirds of, two of them said they were already doing something, but they said it was little. You know, we're training two midwives a year in Sierra Leone or wherever it is. We want this coordinated. We want this to be systematic and big. Um, so I then took it further. I took it back to government, and they said, that's an interesting survey, isn't it? Um, so I then talked to a friend in Zambia who was the per permanent secretary of the Zambian uh, health department and he sent me a shopping list. He said, let's do it, Nigel. You know, here's a list of what I need to run my human resources plan in Zambia. Th these are the people I can't... And he gave me the priorities. He didn't have any um, postgraduate teaching in pathology, in anaesthetics or in mental health. So he said, well, can you help? Um, we put together a programme um, and invited, in fact, uh, with many Scots involved, uh, 35 UK organisations and individuals to try and work around Zambian priorities. This is now happening. We're now seeing postgraduate training. It's only happening in the last two months, uh, postgraduate training starting in those countries. Interestingly, of the volunteers who are going out there to do this, 
very high percentage of Scots, um, yeah, you know, which says something about the local climate and the local interest of, uh, uh, of people here. And I think the way that um, people have been encouraged to think in this way. So we're starting something. This is little, but we could do it. And my final point is this isn't one way. This isn't about doing good for Zambians, though I hope it is. Um, and it is doing what the Zambians have asked us to do. It's not imposing our ideas. But my final point is, if these changes need to happen, can we accelerate them? And I would argue there are three ways we can accelerate them. Firstly, we need to make them visible. In part, that's the point of my book. The point of my book is to say, look, there's all this happening. We should see this as not just sort of odd things done by enthusiasts. This is much more mainstream, much more serious. Secondly, this should influence our training of health workers in this country. The most important point that change will happen will be inside the heads and the minds of health workers. That's where the change will happen. It's not about politicians, not about managers, it's not even about the public. Actually, it's what you as health workers do and how people are trained and to think much more of the, the social side, the system side uh, and, and the various changes and the way in which I suspect medical students are being trained today. But finally, if we could get much more exchange going between poorer countries and richer countries, we will be learning, we will be gaining, we will be getting that experience. And that at the same time as hopefully helping Zambia or indeed Malawi, which I know is a particular Scottish uh, focus, or whatever other country, we can systematically also be learning for ourselves and starting to shift our own health system. Thank you very much. Well, that was tremendous, Nigel. You can see what a positive response you've got from the audience. And I think you can see what a superman Nigel is. I mean, most people get a 30% response to their surveys. <laughs> he gets a 300% response. I don't quite know how you judge that scientifically. No, quite. Um, so just to remind you, I'm Richard Smith. I was a student here years ago. I can remember seeing Billy Connolly on this very stage. And maybe he'll reappear tonight. Um, and Ginny Barber is the editor of PLOS Medicine. We're going to start the discussion, but very quickly, we want to turn it over to you, so be thinking of things you want to ask Nigel. Let me start, Nigel, because um, I think one of the things you do so marvellously, you're getting us simultaneously to think about here and the rest of the world, rather than you know, just think about here or just think about the rest of the world. And you know, we've just had an election, as you've probably noticed, and all of the political parties seem to go out of their way, despite the fact that we have this huge national deficit, to say we will protect health, we'll put more money into health. Do you think that's a mistake? Well, I'm not going to argue against spending money on health, uh, and, and protecting it seems like a good idea. But it is how it's spent that's key here, and I don't see anyone being very radical. And I think, you know, I, I look back on my time as Chief Executive in England, which I appreciate is not Scotland, um, and I think the two things that we didn't do well enough and that there is an opportunity to do now and come from this is firstly being much more radical about how we deploy staff. You know? We grew enormously in England. I think you had the same sort of uh, increase of staff here. But, you know, the skill mix didn't shift anything like as much as I think it could have done. And I hear that from all kinds of people. Uh, I hear it from uh, very senior doctors, uh, as well as managers and politicians, that why didn't we take that opportunity to do that? And maybe we still need to do that, so that we don't always assume that we're going to carry on 
training the very, you need, you need the top of the pyramid, but actually shifting the proportions. And the other one was the link between health and social care, which we simply haven't got right, in, in my view, and much more to do. But, but how do you make that shift? I mean, when I, I think there are roughly three times as many medical students being trained as doctors now as when I graduated mm -hmm. in 1976. So actually, we seem to be going in the opposite direction, not the direction you're advocating. And this is a, this is a very big shit to turn around. Well, I think it is. But, you know, I still hear doctors and others arguing for more medical students um, and that 8,000 a year isn't enough. Um, well, I think maybe it is enough. Um, I also think that if you take the other bit of my argument, which is that I suspect quite a lot of the medical students in this audience will be thinking about spending some of their career abroad. Um, I think, you know, we can be training much more for the wider world. So I, I, I think... It is, a po it, is, it is a policy and a determination that would be worth doing. But I think the biggest... But, but I also realise that if you're just sitting at the top of a political empire and trying to push through a, 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 a controversial or, or, or a disliked change, that's pretty difficult. I don't think right now is necessarily the time to do that, which is why I think the most significant way of making that change is people in this audience. I think it is the people who are responsible for the education of health workers. It's the people who are responsible... Uh, for the big organisations um, who can actually start to make this happen, happen. And I think they can make that happen partly by exposing people to these other ideas. You know? Once you've actually seen these things happening in Mozambique, it's a bit difficult to go back and say completely immoral. You know? Nurses can't do all the Caesars. It may not be practical. I'm not suggesting we copy the Mozambique people any more than I'm suggesting they copy us. But it is about you know, taking off your your glasses, seeing it differently. And I think, I think that's the shift. None of this is quick, but I think that's the shift. Can I ask, how many people in the audience have been mm. in a developing country, not, you know, in Sri Lanka lying on a beach or anything, but actually <laughs> being there and experiencing the real kind of place? How many people in the audience? A lot. So the majority of you. We have far more, I think, than is the average of the population. But I think you're right. Once you've experienced these things, you see things a little differently. Ginny, how did you react to Nigel's talk? Okay, so I mean, I think one of the key things is, that came to me from this is, is a real redefining of global health. So um, sitting in an organisation which is primarily American, global health can often seem like a slightly dirty phrase. It's the diseases of poor people. And I think one of the things your book does tremendously is to reclaim it as a, as a thing that we all need to care about, the idea that we're all in this together, um, and that, it, you know, there's, a, there's an idea of a global public good from health, which I think is an incredibly powerful one. It also comes back to what I do, which is publishing, which I also think is a global public good and something we probably don't do enough of. Um, the, the second point is, I think, the idea of applying science to, you know, it's only relevant when you have science in the context of society. is something I think we've lost control of now. I think that science, to some extent, is an industry of its own. Again, sorry, publishing is also an industry of its own. I'm not sure we're necessarily tying that all together well. Um, and I think that putting those together is going to be absolutely key. So one question that came to my mind when I was reading this is that um, one of the things that causes enormous problems nowadays is the idea that patents, for example, are the driving force behind innovation yeah. in, the, um, in much of health development and, and new drug development. That seems to be something, that model of developing drugs is something we absolutely have to get across. And I wondered if that is something you'd kind of considered. 
Well, on, on that specific point, I, th I think this is a very important point, and it's interesting to, to um, see what's happened in the last 10 years where Gates and other people have been putting money into the drugs of the poor. Yeah, I mean, pe people all know the TB story of how actually um, for years it seemed like a drug of the poor, but now, of course, it is resurgent. Um, but I still, somebody told me the other day that we still use a diagnostic test for TB that's 100 years old and we haven't had a new drug for 40 years. Well, that's now being changed because actually Gates and the British government have been putting money into that. Now, that's a direct shaping of science for, for, for societal basis uh, reasons. But I also noticed some quite helpful stuff from GSK, as it happens, the new chief executive there, not so new, Andrew Whitty, um, who's, who's on 100 areas is willing to pool patents with other people to look at particular drugs which have particular public, to look at particular diseases which have particular public health issues. I think there's some movement there, and I think we should be forcing that movement because um, the danger for science is it can lead us to be, it can, it can increase equity or it can increase inequity. And it's very easy to see how, you know, we're going to have these wonderful specialised drugs and processes and so on available to a very small number of people, even in our country, let alone in the in the world. So how do, you, how do you try and shape that a bit? Some of it's investment in the right areas. Some of it, I suspect, and I hear people telling me, is, is that we should be spending much more effort on the diagnostic end of things than on the, 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 the drug end of things, as it were. Um, now, I don't know enough about that, but it seems to me those are the sort of areas which, which become very important. Yeah. I, mean, I think that goes along with having a very fundamental change in how one thinks about health. So it comes back to something you, you said in your talk and you say in your book about changing people's minds. And I did sort of wonder if, you know, we perhaps just need, you know, our generation is kind of the one we need to throw out and start with all the medical students. I mean, mm. I think there's a very strong mindset amongst people of a certain generation that you do it this way. And so I'd be, I'd be very curious to know about how many medical students there are here and whether this is the sort of thing that resonates with them. Because it seems to me with doctors, consultants of my age, this is going to be an extraordinarily hard sell, I think. Yeah, can I, uh, what, what, which I might want to ask, ask the audience, but my experience of planning is it's 55-year-olds who try and plan for the next 20 <laughs> years. Why? <laughs> you know? they've got nothing to lose. Uh, and, and I'm starting to feel that most meetings I go to where people are planning, I want to see a few people under 35 at it, mm. um, and not just taking the notes. Because uh, we're, plan we're planning other people's futures if we're not careful. Well, luckily, looking around, well, I think we've got a few 55-year-olds here, but we've also got a few younger people, so it's, it's time to turn over to you. While we're identifying, you have to wave your hand and we'll bring you a microphone, and we want you to say who you are um, and then ask a question. While we're waiting for somebody to wave their hand at me, or I'm going to get absolutely desperate, I'm going to... Nigel, one of the things that wasn't quite clear to me is how much your... So there's one up there, if you could get the microphone up there. One of the things that wasn't quite clear to me is, is how much you're kind of optimistic that a lot of the things you would like to happen will kind of happen anyway, and how much there's a need for something rather more radical. Yeah. I think it's pace, um, Richard, in, in the answer to your question. I think, I think it's pace because I think, you know, what I've been doing is I've been observing people changing. I've been observing people saying the system doesn't work, the system gets in the way, and, and, and making their own changes, whether it's about, you know, what GPs do, whether it's about the engagement with social workers, whatever it is. I see all these bits. What I don't see is um, those coalescing and getting momentum behind them. 
Um, and I think that's the position of, of, of leaders to try and make that happen. If you are in a sort of major paradigm shift, and I think we are, you can't see either end, clearly. Uh, and, and the role of, uh, you know, you want to try and find ways that will accelerate you changing from a 20th century model of health, in my view, to what a 21st century model will look like. Uh, and that's where I think these exchanges and so on happen. So I'm broadly optimistic we're moving in that direction, but I could see us deflected. And I think it's really important that we, we get the accelerants in. Right, so we've got a question up here. We've got two microphones. So in order not to have a long interval, if you'd like to ask a question, please signal to me and we'll, we'll bring you a microphone. But up here now. Uh, Mark Woolhouse, I'm a professor of infectious disease epidemiology. I'm also, I should declare, under 55. Whee! <laughs> right, sweet. Thank you and for the lecture. Just about it. <laughs> uh, it's a stressful <laughs> job. <laughs> Thank you for the lecture. You gave a very nice story about your partnership with Zambia. I'm sure there are quite a few people in this room who have been involved in something similar mm. along those sort of lines. Mm. I certainly have. At the beginning of the lecture, you said the need was for a million healthcare workers on that continent. Mm. Well, obviously, we're scraping. Yeah. Not even scraping the surface there. How do you deal with the need for a million? Yeah, um, I agree. And the Zambia thing is, 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 um, is more in the way of a demonstration project. And it was a response to people saying to me, it, uh, the 35 organisations include Lothian Health Board and, and, and one or two others. So, so to try and get what's already happening to, to, to amount to more, you know, the, the whole being more than the sum of the parts or whatever the, the expression is. I think that is part of the answer. But the, the, the bigger answer is um, to, uh, um, to get more of the funding that is around international development focused towards health workers uh, and to health systems, in my view. I actually was involved in a piece of work two years ago with, with the head of the African Union, where we actually looked at what it would take to scale up health significantly. Multifactorial, you, you, you need to just increase the throughput in some of the existing schools. You need to be clear about what sort of health workers you're trying to train, because some people you can train really quite quickly. Um, it's not all doctors we're talking about. Um, you need foreigners to come in and help in these sort of ways. You need a whole range of stuff. But you also do need some funding within that, within that context. Um, that is sort of moving forward. Yeah, you, you, you see resolutions coming out of the WHO. You see a bit more money going in. You see PEPFAR, if you know the President's Fund, for AIDS in, 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 in Africa, saying that they're going to train 130,000 more health workers in the next 10 years, or they're going to fund the training off. So that's sort of starting to happen. But you need some of the models. And as I say, the Zambia one, believe me, is I, I have no grand ideas for it. I am responding to what people are saying and thinking about, actually, if we, if we coordinate, if we got our act together, you know, then actually we could do more with what we're just doing now. Another young person. Uh, almost as young as Mark. Neil, Neil Turner, and I'm a professor of nephrology here, and I'm involved in a project in Malawi, but also have contacts in, in other places. And actually, it's a direct run-on from, from what you've just been discussing. Mm. Um, we can do a lot to help train people, but one of the key messages that we, you, you keep learning again when yeah. you get involved in this kind of yeah. thing is sustainability. Yeah. And I'm sure you've done the calculation. Mm. If Malawi, Zambia, other African nations spent 7.5% of their GMP on, uh, GDP on healthcare, would they have enough money to employ the million people that are needed? 
Uh, I'll tell you the, the calculation that the World Bank has done um, is there is a slightly is a different one, which is, which is that all African sub-Saharan African nations committed to spending 15% of government spending on health. That was a committee. It's called the Abuja Declaration of 2001. Only about a quarter of them are there. If that happened, um, you'd get to uh, you'd get to about 800,000. That was the last figure. So you could actually achieve quite a lot. Now that makes all kinds of assumptions about skill mix. If all of those 800,000 were doctors, you wouldn't. If you had a skill mix of community, mid-level, and so on, you'd get quite close to it. But that's an average across a continent of 53 countries. But that's a, so it's sort of within range if they've already made that political commitment. Having said that, because you know, we talk about aid, but actually aid is only a small amount of the money that's actually going into the system, and it's what the government itself spends in most countries that's significant. If they fulfil the commitment they made, as I say, a few years ago, you're getting within range. Um, it's not completely impossible. Let's go to the left-hand side now, and then we'll come back to the right-hand side. Over here. Um. Um, my name is Fadashi Ratna. I'm a PhD student, but I'm also um, a surgical trainee. Um, and uh, my specialty is ophthalmology. And I just want to go back to what yeah. you were talking about, training nurses um, to do cataract surgery. Um, one of the problems of being at the top of the tree in a surgical specialty is being able to deal with everything that goes wrong um, when trainees get into trouble, when um, other surgeons get into trouble. And one of the problems we face as trainees is getting sufficient, um, uh, sufficient practice, even as ophthalmologists today, um, to be able to be competent surgeons. And in order to operate well, you need experience. And if you start train, taking this experience away from trainees, you're not going to get um, surgeons at the top of the tree sufficiently trained to be able to deal with the problems that occur lower down. So I, I really wonder about um, what, I, I don't know anything about caesareans, but as far as cataracts is concerned, it's very, very difficult to train. It's very difficult to get the experience for trainees. How are you going to get that experience for other people as well, or other sorts of trainees? Okay, um, I, I think there's two, two separate bits to that, that in a way. Um, I, you, let me make clear that I believe you need the top of the tree, the top of the pyramid as well as the bottom of the pyramid. And, I, and, and it is a health system, and you look at all the studies, uh, and, you, and you know that community workers only work effectively when they've got other people they can refer to, when they've got supervision and training. So you need, you need an integrated system. Um, and the people at the top need to know how to do the stuff that people lower down the system do. So the people at the top in ophthalmology may well have a, a wide view of all kinds of uh, eye diseases and all kinds of complications and all the rest of it, but they also need to know about cataracts. So they certainly need some training on cataracts. I agree with that. I don't think you're saying this, but I remember when I was running the Oxford Radcliffe that I had the radiologist come to me and they said, you know this policy of not having so many um, barium meals? It's lousy for training. So I said, but it's good for patients. And they said, no, but it's lousy for training. Um, well, we carried on with the policy. Um, but, you know, sometimes people do argue that you should keep procedures going for training when actually they're not necessarily what patients want. So I don't see why it's too difficult to make sure that the people at the top of ophthalmologists have done a reasonable number of cataracts, but I don't see why they need to do them all. I mean, I agree with you. You're hmm. doing more 
but what I'm trying to say is even at this stage, even at my stage in my career, and I'm, I only have about three more years to go, it's hard enough to get the numbers to make me feel competent enough to, to look at someone else training. Does that make sense? And it's hard enough to get not just the numbers, but the experience in complications, because you need to be able to deal with everything that goes wrong, or potentially deal with everything that goes wrong. Because yeah. what tends to happen is, if you have someone beneath you, they can do the, sort of, they can do the general and the, the routine procedures, but the moment something goes wrong, it's up to you to fix it. And you need people who are sufficiently competent and sufficiently trained. And it's hard enough at this stage, at now, to get the training. Yeah, I, I accept that point. I suspect we'd need to look at the numbers and the relative numbers, how many ophthalmologists are you trying to train as opposed to how many other people. Maybe in future we might want to train slightly fewer ophthalmologists. You know? But I'd find it quite difficult to explain to the public or to, or to the Chancellor of the Exchequer that we were carrying on having very highly trained people doing cataract surgery because it was good for their training even though it cost 15 times as much or whatever. You know? That's the sort of dilemma that you're in. It's not that you don't need to be trained, um, but you, you know, and none of this is easy. Um, but uh, you clearly need to do cataract surgeries. But if you're going to end up having less ophthalmologists, perhaps in proportion now, then you'll have more space for those you have to do more training. That's the implication of what I'm saying. But actually what you're saying would mm. be unacceptable is actually what we've got now. I mean, I was in a clinic in India, in Karnataka, just three weeks ago, and I met a woman there, actually a doctor, but trained specifically in rapid uh, cataract surgery. She, she could do 120 a day. And the professor of surgery said, well, if I was going to have my cataracts done, I'd have them done by her. But the reality is that, you know, getting from where we are now to where you might like us to be is very tough because we've got 8,000 people heading for the top, not for the middle level. But you can see the logic. If you had fewer people at the top, then they inevitably would have more experience. It's, the mm -hmm. problem is, how do we get from where we are now to where we want to be? And I'm not suggesting it in the next three years. <laughs> I'm Richard Weller. I'm a senior lecturer in dermatology here. Uh, and my question really goes quite closely with Neil Turner's. The problem with the healthcare workers is we, we burn through money, um, drugs, hospitals, operations. If you're training, these are very poor countries. Um, can they afford... The, the consequent costs from having large cohorts of healthcare workers? Well, I, I, I mean, can I address that on two levels? Can, uh, the first one actually is almost can they afford not to? Um, because one of the things that you do observe in Africa that is that the dependency levels are much higher of society. There are more people disabled, unable to work and so on, quite often associated with, with health issues. So I haven't actually seen an adequate description of health's contribution to the economy I believe the World Bank is going to do one. Nobody, I has, unless somebody in the audience can tell me properly, is, 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 you know, you see bits about how health contributes to the economy. You see how nutri good nutrition, good studies on how good nutrition contributes to the economy. I haven't seen any really good ones on how good health contributes to the economy. And I'd like to ask that question, because logically I suspect it does, and large numbers of disabled people would suggest that, you know, you've got a poor economy. Uh, so it's certainly that way around. But go to the workforce and... and, and and clearly, health workers cost money. Um, the, the plan that, my, that, that the African Union put together was for a 10-year program, which actually went in stages. So you trained a lot of community workers. You trained a lot of people who knew how to do 20 things right and did them right every time. That way, you massively, you massively dealt with some of the child mortality issues, because some of this is clean water, some of it's you know, immunization, some of it's 
rehydration after diarrhea. I mean, you know, there's still a lot of that. Um, they then moved, the plan was then to move on to a, a range of mid-level workers and then, because it takes longer, the senior workers. You can think about a plan that would work for your country and not assume you've got to have the same norms in Tunisia, which, which is relatively mid-level, um, or Sierra Leone or South Africa. You know, the numbers can be worked through. But I think the issue is, is more, one shouldn't have that as a council of despair. If you try and set up a health worker system in Ethiopia based on our, on our staffing arrangements, you're in trouble straight away. You know? But if you do it on, on, on ones that work there and, and get results, then you needn't be in trouble. But it is country specific. Um, I know. Right, we're going to go to here, and once he's mm. asked his question, can we transfer the microphone over there, and then we'll have this person and then you. I'm getting really organised. You're yeah. very good at this, Richard. <laughs> Thank you. Uh -huh. uh, Ian Young, uh, formerly Head of International Development, oh, NHS yeah. Health Scotland. and oh. um, um, oh, right. I'm retired now, so I'm obviously over 55, but <laughs> I'm still doing some work for World Health Organisation and health promotion. Right. Thanks for your lecture, Lord Chris. Um, to get, to get to the fundamentals of education, not, not just education of healthcare professionals, but primary education for young mm. people in countries yeah. like Zambia and many of the African yeah. countries. The Millennium Development Goals acknowledge the importance of that. Um, I suspect that putting a lot of resources into healthcare professionals' support mm. in a country where young women are not even getting primary education, and Zambia is not an example of that. Zambia has done a lot in education terms. Um, but many of the African countries are still in that position. Um, so thinking really radically, should we not be getting out of the health care box and looking at yeah. all the systems and how they integrate, including basic education for young people. That, that, that's my, my question. Could we be wasting resources by putting the money into healthcare professionals going into a country where they have not got the primary education system up to the, the most basic level? Because the Millennium Development Goals are very modest even in what they're asking, and many yeah. countries are not reaching them just now. Yeah, no, I agree with you, but I don't think it's an either or. You know? And actually, the Millennium Development Goal on primary education is going well. Um, and we also know the evidence that the most effective thing you can do in a lot of these countries is train, is educate girls. Um, uh, and a mother that has had five years of education in, in, in India, any education, her baby is 40% more likely to reach the age of five. You know these statistics. That's a very important thing. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that's the only thing you should do. Uh, and, and there are other things which the mother can't reach. Um, and individual countries will have to make their own decision. I think part of the problem is we, we tend to sit in, in Edinburgh or Washington. I mean, I spend a lot of time working on Africa, but I spend a lot of time in Washington and Seattle and Geneva and London because that's where decisions get taken. And actually, you know, individual countries, and Zambia is a good example, um, will make their own judgment about that balance. And they'll have to make it in the context of the labor market um, as well as the economy, and has just been said. And it won't be the same in, di in different places. And I think our contribution will be that where, where, where we can help is actually to train people, you know, to, in, in the scientific techniques and approaches. So I think, I think it's like that. And I, and, I, and I do think the difficulty is that when we start to think about this, we do try and get to a big solution when I, when I suspect it's a lot of little solutions that will make the difference, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Okay, everything's beginning to accelerate now. I'm seeing lots of hands come up, so let's be a little quicker as we go through it. So after you've asked your question, we're going to take it up there, okay? Wave your hand so we can see you. Now it's your turn. Okay. Uh, Michael Sharp, I'm Professor of Psychological Medicine here. And I remember you when you were the chief executive of John Radcliffe, and I was a registrar there. <laughs> I, I, I thought I remember you, right. And I bet you asked troublesome questions. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I, I just want to, if you don't want me, just take it a slightly different direction, because I think yeah. I really liked about what you were saying was this two-way traffic. Yeah. And so often you hear this, how, we can, how can we disseminate our great ideas and our great resources to these poor people? Yeah. On the assumption we've got everything pretty much sorted here. Mm. And... One of the, 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 the negative aspects, if you like, of our medicine is it's profoundly disabling to a lot of people. Mm. Um, that a lot of people are given drug treatments, are given uh, things to do, are told they have diagnoses, and then they spend their life on benefits and don't go back to work. It's a huge problem, as, as you well know. Do we have anything to learn the other way, how to do better at that, how not to disable people? Well, I suspect we do. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I could be precise in the answer, but I'm, I'm sure we do, because actually that's a sort of unsustainable thing in, in, in those countries. And I suspect it is both a mix of doctors' expectations and just how we actually, or doctors' clinicians' expectations, just how we behave to those people and what we tell them about where they are and, and how we're sort of expecting them to behave, and how society uh, affects them. And there's something there about... Um, uh, that, that, you know, if, if somebody like yourself with your background was spending time asking that question and looking at what they do in BRAC in Bangladesh, where not only do they deal with the healthcare issues, not only have they reduced childhood death, so the biggest cause of death, childhood death is now drowning, you know, in, in Bangladesh, though there are reasons for why drowning is so high, but, you know, they, but, but they've actually also are promoting the economy, they've created schools, they've created shops, they've created a university, you know? And, and, and something around that and what the infrastructure in the community is, which may be very different in bits of Edinburgh than it is in bits of London or in bits of Oxford, you know? Um, you know, it, it, there's something around that sort of regeneration sort of agenda here where I suspect we could learn something from a Bangladesh organisation that was set up to help returning refugees after the liberation struggle from eastern Pakistan. That's what it was set up for, and it does health now. So that's the sort of territory I'd look. Because you know that fantastic stuff from Amartya Sen, that you ask people in Bihar, where life expectancy is about 40, have you been ill in the last month? Most of them say no. Whereas if you ask them in Karnataka, where life expectancy is a lot longer, more say yes. If you ask them in Europe, you know, most people have had something wrong with them in the last month, and almost everybody in America. So mortality and morbidity <laughs> go in opposite directions. It's very interesting. Over here. Yeah. And can we move the microphone two um, people there. to here after then, and then we'll go right up to the back. So after you've asked your question. Hi, I'm Jean Beckley. I'm a GP in uh, Edinburgh here. Um, I, I was interested in what you were saying in terms of um, ex ex health exchange, in terms of um, experienced people working in um, developing countries. But one of the things that I... I think really exists is there's a lot of barriers between professionals in the NHS doing this and actually mm. going uh, and using their skills and facilitating education abroad yeah. because and and this is a little bit to do with training because of the foundation programs it's quite right. hard to step mm -hmm. on and off 
of those um, and training is much more regimented and as a, a general practitioner it's quite actually hard to step out of practice to mm. to go and, and do something like that as well so there's really huge barriers to prevent that and just to refer back to the ophthalmology trainee it does strike me that if it's hard to to get the level of experience of doing cataract operations here I imagine it perhaps isn't so hard if there was a way of facilitating people going and and performing th those operations where there's an obvious um, need, mm. where there, there aren't such highly skilled people. And is there any work being done to facilitate um, more freedom of movement of professionals in a way? Yeah. I think the, the great... I, I, I won't try and answer the complete question. This is a very in, in, in important point. I've been trying to push some recommendations to government and indeed with the Scottish government as, as I think ahead of the UK generally on this, but any, any Brits who now go and do this voluntarily for up to three years will get their pension contributions paid, which is actually quite helpful even if you're not getting your salary in that period. So there are some enabling things. On the trainee side, um, some colleges like the Royal College of, of Paediatrics and Child Health has got some particular placements. Um, through VSO, which it's able to use uh, and, and has qualified. So I think that people are starting to do it. I think it needs to be done on, 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 a, on, a, on a greater scale. Your point about, I mean, we mustn't assume that we can get our people trained on poor people, <laughs> which, is the, which is the downside of that. But on the other hand, there are some positives that you can, you can work through ways in which that can be done that is not just you know, sending our trainees to train on poor people, you know, which, which would be a difficult one. But you can see other ways in which people could work in those countries um, very helpfully uh, and very effectively. So I think it's a big agenda, but I think it's down to the leaders in the medical professions and the universities to shift that on. And I think there's a lot of ideas around now. It just needs to coalesce. Up here. Hi there, my name's Chris. I'm one of the medical students here. Yeah. I'm definitely under 55. Um, I'm just wondering, I saw a, um, a study a couple of months ago in one of the major journals um, and it was comparing groups of nurses and groups of doctors doing, I think it was colonoscopies, so diagnostic tests. Yeah, right. And the results are quite ambiguous, but I wonder whether you think that's one of the first steps that needs to be taken in, because everything we do now is evidence-based and whether that's, you know, randomised controlled trials need to be done before we can start flattening out the pyramid, like you said. Uh, I'm sure you need the evidence, um, and but we do see there's been a very big shift. I don't know anyone's charted it over the last 20 years. I mean, I remember one of the big fights we had when I was in the Department of Health in the UK was was expanding prescribing, um, which people really didn't like. Well, one lot of people really didn't like, another lot really really did. There's been a lot of moving imaging technicians. There's, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff, and I don't think we've focused enough on understanding what's going on or in taking that as far as we can. But you do want to do it on the basis of, of evidence. This isn't a, a just wouldn't that be a good idea to get nurses to do, to, to do something. Um, but I suspect there's more evidence around than, than we think, but I don't know what my colleagues... Yeah. There's more evidence than we know what to do with. That's why I answer yeah. as an editor. But I want to move on here. So, John here. Thank you very much for your, your lecture, Lord Crisper. I wanted to make a point. I'm, I'm John Gillis. I'm a general practitioner and I work in medical education at this university and yeah. NHS Education Scotland and in Africa. 
One of the big events of last year was the, in World Health Organization terms was the World Health Assembly report in May 2009, which reinvigorated the concept of primary health care for the first time really since Alma Ata in 1979. Yeah. Um, and also mentioned not just primary health care workers, but various cadres, midwives, nurses, family physicians, and so on. And I wondered what effect you felt this would have in turning the world upside down in health terms, um, or, or how, how was it going to impact on the structures of health in the developing world over the next decade? Um, I don't know in, in detail. I, I would, would make perhaps one point, which um, I only discovered the World Health Organization when I left the NHS, you know? When, you, when you're running the NHS in, in Scotland, or let alone in England, I suspect, you don't particularly pay all that much attention to what they say. Um, but if you're in Africa, people do pay a lot of attention. Um, and therefore, I think it's probably extremely helpful. And Alma Arta, as, as you say, um, you know, it's not that much different what people are saying now. I mean, I can see lots of people of our generation say, well, didn't we say that 30 years ago? Um, but now seems a, more, a, a better time to make it happen. You know, there seems to be more chance of making it happen. I, th I think it will influence African governments. Um, and I think African governments are getting more powerful vis-a-vis -vis donors. You know, we went through a period in the last 10 years where donors were so much more powerful than national governments. I think that's shifting. So I'd be optimistic it will, it will shift a bit that way. And I think a lot of the classic mistakes have been made, you know. Spending 90% of your health budget on one hospital in, you know, that's been done. I think people are now wanting to move on. Good, we've got about nine minutes. Whatever happens, we're going to end at 7.30. So start waving your hands, or maybe you can grab Nigel afterwards if we run out of time. Up at the back there. Sell your book. Good evening, I'm David Patterson, and this is not a conspiracy, but I'm Ian's successor. NHS Health Scotland. Oh. We're also a WHO collaborating centre. Yeah. And that last comment actually changed the question I was going to ask. Because I think European and high-income countries do ignore WHO. Yeah. And yet, when you, I would be interested to know those of you who teach, whether you're doing medical students, nursing students, or us just ordinary health mortals, um, do you actually tap into the knowledge networks that lie behind the Commission on the Social Determinants of Health report that came out. These were world-renowned experts looking at all of the things that contribute to the symptoms that you teach people to deal with. The people who walk into primary care surgeries, people who walk into outpatient departments, the people who walk into A&E departments are symptomatic of the exposures that they are trying to deal with. And it would be interesting to know how many people have even seen the Commission on the Social Determinants of Health report. And it's to Scottish Government's credit that equally well, which is the inequalities strategy in Scotland, actually hits all of the main components that was in that report. Equally well came out two months before the Commission on the Social Determinants of Health. So if you really want to be looking at this not only from a, a developing or a low-income country uh, perspective, you think about it, the surveys that went out when they put out the report, Michael Marmot keeps quoting this. The difference in life expectancy between the Carlton in Glasgow and Lindsay on the outskirts of Glasgow for men is still 18 years. If you are in the upper quintile of people in Scotland, the most affluent, you're still 
falling behind on your morbidity and your mortality. So we have a lot to learn from our colleagues, not only in Africa, but in Eastern Europe, because they take a community development approach to this. And my colleague who talked about the primary care thing, it's essential. If we don't look at communities engaging with this, we're still going to get people coming through the doors. We ain't going to change that. We might keep them alive longer, and we might get better outcomes, but you're not going to get any shortage of customers. While you think of an answer, Nigel, how many people in the audience would classify themselves as students? Well, in a sense, you're all students, but I mean, actually, students in the literal sense. How many people are students? Okay, quite a lot of you. How many of you had, have, been, have had introduced to you in your course Michael Marmot's report on social determinants in health? Well, there you are. Not so bad. Maybe about 50%. Is that better than you expected? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was only going to say I agree with your comments. You know, we should pay more attention to the, to the World Health Assembly and World Health Organization for most of the things it does. Ginny, just, and then we'll go over there. Yeah. So can I just pick quickly up on, on that point about the, um, mm. the social determinants of health? Because the, there is a paradox in the, in the Western world, the developed world, which is that sometimes being more affluent, being more educated, actually is not good for your health. So I'm thinking of two examples. One is vaccination, and one actually is something that we published recently on uh, on HPV vaccination, you're, you're less likely to give your daughter HPV vaccine if you're a college graduate in Canada anyway. This seems to me an extraordinary thing. We're going backwards here. So can we learn something from the developing world against that, to, to kind of counter that? I think this is a, it's a huge social movement at the moment that I find extremely worrying. Well, I, don't, I don't know because I've seen exactly the same thing in, in and in, I make a comparison in my book in India with people in a Muslim village not wanting yeah. to take the Hindu authorities. Yeah. I think it is something about trust and, and who you take your um, who you take your advice from. I was in the Department of Health in, in England with the MMR scare. We adopted a white coat strategy, explicitly a white coat strategy. We put as many doctors on, on television in a white coat as we possibly yeah. could. You know, it's led by, led by Liam Donaldson to try and say, look, you know, this isn't the government, it's not nasty people like managers or politicians. Um, this is doctors saying you should do it. It didn't work. Yeah. We need to be doing the BRAC way of doing it. I mean, that seems to be something coming, that we're missing. Coming, coming from, increasingly studies show that we take our ideas from people like us, yes. in inverted commas, you know? <laughs> uh, and so we may take them from doctors, but not everyone does. Okay, we're going to have three more questions. Here, then up there, then you'll be the last. But you'll all be free to come and buy Nigel's book and oh, chat to him. And the more you buy, the more you can talk to him. Arvind <laughs> <laughs> Viraya, I'm a consultant in acute medicine at the Royal Infirmary. Thank you for that excellent presentation. My question actually leads on from something um, that was said just now about MMR vaccination. Although it's a problem in that people perhaps... Um, rejected an effective treatment. I worked in the UK for 11 years and 10 years in India before that, lived and worked in both countries. One of the biggest differences I've found between the two countries, I've not worked in Africa, so I can really talk about India, yeah. is that the public are much more likely to demand certain things. They are more knowledgeable, might be a problem sometimes, but their expectation of what they should get from healthcare is much higher that Amartya Sen quotation um, also says the same thing. Uh, it's about the expectation, and that expectation drives quality as well. 
And that expectation should also change before a lot of healthcare can change in a country like India. Now again, India has resources. It, doesn't, it isn't without resources, but I wonder whether there is a possibility that when you put your money into things that help with healthcare in different countries, that there is a specific plan also to try and improve people's knowledge about illness, not just through primary education, but support networks through um, general uh, support for people who want to become more empowered about their health. Yeah. Should I take the three together? Is that the best bet? All right. We'll let it, so we're going to move it across here quickly. And then, uh, so up there. And then Nigel's going to do a tour de force and do all three at once. <laughs> so down here. Hi, yeah, I'm Kara, and I'm doing um, global health here at the university. So we have heard a few of, of a few of these things, and also your report. Um, I'm just wondering uh, on the aspect of um, health workforce planning. Surely, more training of um, qualified healthcare workers is needed. But what about deployment plans and ensuring that they have somewhere to work that is um, sustainable yeah. and that fits with the communities where in which they're needed? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Last question. Robin Burley, and uh, I'm a non-exec uh, director with Lothian Health. And Nigel, having been at the, the top of the uh, governance system in England in health, um, I sort of come to this from the point of view that our governance systems are not about turning things upside down. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder what advice you might have for somebody in a more modest position in the governance structure uh, to help to turn things upside down. That you mean you? You want to turn things upside down. So how do, well, that would be relevant to everybody in this audience. How do they turn things upside down? We. So, Nigel. Um, right. <laughs> Those three. I mean, it, it, the, the point about support networks, I mean, has to be um, right in, in terms... And, and if I go back to, 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 to BRAC again, you know, it is a model where they do things alongside each other so that actually you know, there is the education of women but there's actually also the empowerment of women uh, within, within the system um, and, and drawing on the resources in the community. And, I, and, and that can apply in whatever community one's in. Um, the point about deployment, um, you're quite right, training isn't enough. You know, it's got to be in the context. But I keep coming back to the fact that actually training has got to be in the context of the country and the people who need to make the decisions are the people in the country. You know, we can't decide that from outside. If I take Ethiopia, which has probably got the best developed human resources plan in Africa, um, the health minister there, um, who actually is a, um, uh, has a PhD in community health from, from Nottingham, as I recall, um, uh, he has a view on this, that, that, that he is training very specifically groups of staff, but he is also making sure there are jobs for them at the other end. He's also made a very significant change, which is um, to the recruitment process of people to work in healthcare. Um, and he's recruiting many more women, and he's recruiting people from rural areas. Because the other issue we haven't talked about is that even in a poor country, people will congregate where the money is, which is in towns rather than in rural areas. So it is an integrated set that, from the outside, we can offer help with, but actually somebody inside has got to ha take that authority, uh, has got that authority in ways that we as foreigners haven't. And that sort of takes me, Robin, to, to, to your last question in a way. Um, which is, um, I think the biggest issues that are going to drive costs and are going to drive um, dissatisfaction in, in, in the health service in, in England, and I imagine it's locally here as well, are that link between health and social care, health, social care, the patient, that sort of bit there, and 
being radical in whatever way is the right way to be radical locally. And I don't quite understand the power of, of health boards, but you know, probably the more they get alongside local authorities, the more that they can integrate their processes and start to think that for a lot of patients, the answer isn't trying to treat this particular disease. The answer is trying to help this person to be independent. And by independent, I mean independent to live the life they want to lead. You know? Not about us judging quality of life. I tell a story in the book of a, of a very uh, disabled woman I know who remembers being in ITU and hearing the doctors say if she crashes, don't bother to resuscitate because um, her quality of life's so poor. Um, she managed to keep herself awake from then on to make sure <laughs> that the buggers didn't get her, you know? And, 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 you know, who are they to judge my quality of life, you know? And there's some aspect there about health and social care and independence that I think you as health boards can, can push and can develop um, in slight opposition to most of your um, clinical colleagues who will, because of the way they're trained and because of the way they think, will be, will be thinking about clinical solutions to problems, whereas a lot of the problems I think are social solutions. I'm delighted I've got a professor of psychological medicine agreeing with me as I, uh, uh, or nodding anyway, perhaps, uh, uh, as I say that. So I think that's a really big thing. And I think the other thing, and, and, and that'll drive costs if you get it wrong, and it'll drive dissatisfaction and it'll drive a whole lot of stuff. I think the other thing is this one about being as radical as you can, pushing the boundaries on, um, on what staff do, on what health workers do. And do you always need the overqualified person, if I put it crudely, when you could actually get the just right qualified person to, to do the job? And I know you've worked in other industries and you'll know what, 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 I, what I, I mean about that. Well, Nigel couldn't possibly say this, but of course the first step in turning the world upside down is to go and buy a copy of his book, because <laughs> it's a formula for turning the world upside down. Okay, can I thank Ginny, Edinburgh University, all those dead philosophers, and most of all, Nigel, for a tremendous talk. Well, thank you. Thank you, Richard. You did that very well. I'm good. Thanks, Ginny. Can I thank you all for participating in that really illuminating discussion, but we want to actually have a formal vote of thanks from Dr. Liz Grant, who is one of the leading academics in uh, the, the foundation of our Global Health Academy. So, Liz, would you please say a few words of thanks for us? Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much for that opportunity to really think again about how we approach global health. And I think the one thing that's come across is that We've previously kept thinking about an us and a them, and you're trying to say, there is no us and them, it's us together, us right across the world together, so thank you. And each of the three of you have um, run your own little revolutions, and Robin, thanks for telling us that we actually together, this whole host of experts together can make a change tonight. So from, on behalf of Edinburgh University and the Global Health Academy here, thank you very much for tonight. Ha, ha, ha.